So let's say you knew that you were going to die in 24 hours. What would you do? Would you go ahead and eat that KFC double down sandwich? Because it doesn't matter anymore. I'll go ahead and do it. Don't care about my cholesterol. Would you cancel your cell phone and not pay the penalty? Would you update your Facebook status that says, dying in 24 hours to see how many of your friends like it? Like, that's awkward. <laughs> Would you get just a random tattoo on your face? Like, just to freak people out. What are you doing, huh? You know, why not? I've got 24 hours to live. Would you ride a horse through Grant's Pass in an Elvis costume playing flame-throwing bagpipes? Real guy in Portland does that. So you're just bringing it down here, man, blessing us with those things. Would you eat three tubs of Nutella? Matt, I already do that. Okay, you're gonna die tomorrow then. What would you do? Would anyone do this? Would you gather around you your 12 best friends? Put a meal on for them. In the middle of that meal, strip down to a towel and wash their feet. Anyone doing that? Because that's exactly what Jesus does. He strips down on the thing that we call the Last Supper and serves his disciples. Now, I'm an American and I don't like having my feet washed. It's happened to me one time. It was the most awkward thing ever. I never want to repeat that. I'm a lot like Peter. Peter's like, really? Can we do a fist bump? Because I prefer that, <laughs> right? But Jesus says, it's Luke 22:15. I earnestly desire this meal. It's on my bucket list. It's the last thing I need to check off before I go to what I need to do. So it's a brilliant thing. I don't know if we understand all the connotations of the Last Supper, so I'm gonna try to explain a little bit of them today. So Mark chapter 14, we're jumping into the Last Supper. Let's read it, and we'll talk about it. Mark 14, 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out. And they went to the city and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is the one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it, as it is written of him, 
but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I call this Passover Jesus style. So he has this thing set up. His disciples are like, hey, Passover's coming. What do we do? How do we do this? And Jesus says, go into this town and you're gonna see a man carrying water. That's the sign. Why would that be a sign? Because 2,000 years ago, men did not carry water. You just didn't do that. That was women's work. A man would never carry water. So the fact that they go to this town and they see a dude carrying water, they're like, oh my, that's not normal. Follow that guy. So it'd be like today, What's something that modernizes it? What is something that men don't do? They don't go into department stores and men do not buy makeup, okay? So if you're buying makeup as a man, knock it off. <laughs> men don't buy makeup, okay? So be like that. Whatever is your thing, men should not do this. Men shouldn't vacuum, men shouldn't do the dishes. Whatever is your thing, <laughs> well, I don't care what it is. Men don't do that. It'd be something like that. What in the world is that guy doing? Okay, it'd be that. So they see this. They're like, huh? They follow him. They prepare it. Jesus has set this up in advance because he wants to have this Passover meal with his disciples before he dies. And we often take the communion side of this and we talk a lot about communion, which is important. But most Christians are ignorant of the Passover which is the root that the Passover or the root that communion was grafted into. And I think as believers, we better not be ignorant of the Passover because in it has all these long, like biblical theology ideas that echo into our lives today. That 2000 years ago, they would read and know all these things. So I'm gonna briefly try to get us caught up on what a reader 2,000 years ago would have in his head as he read this story, okay? So we're gonna talk about Passover, and it's the simplest, there's lots of different ways to think about Passover. This is the simplest one I've heard, and it's from a rabbi that actually lived at the time of Jesus by the name of Gamaliel. And he gives like, these are the four big things that every Passover meal has to have to be legitimate. And we're just gonna go over those super quick, and then we're gonna look at what Jesus does to the Passover meal in bringing it into the Christian faith of today, or communion, all right? So here's what Gamaliel says. Number one, Passover had to have, number one, really good wine. Or if you're Baptist, really good Welch's grape juice. One of the two, okay? And here's what would happen. There'd be four glasses of wine, that would be throughout the meal that you would drink. And every time you would drink that, before you drank it, the head of the feast, the dad, if it was in a home, Jesus with his 12 disciples, 
Before they would drink it, they would say this. I have it transliterated from the Hebrew. I'll read it for you. I don't have perfect Hebrew. I'll read it as best I can, and then I'll tell you what it actually says. So they would say this. Baruch, Atta, Adonai, Eluhenu, Malek, Ha'alam, Borei, Pri, Ha'adama, meaning, may you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. And then they would drink together. So you had to have this good wine, four different cups, this blessing before each, each cup. Number two, you had what was called karpos. Karpos, it was lettuce that would then be dipped into salt water and then eaten. And in that Passover, what would happen is the children would dip into the salt water and they'd begin to eat it and they would eat it and they'd be like, dad, why are we eating lettuce dipped into salt water? This is gross. And what the dad would say is, we're eating this because the salt water is the tears from Joseph. And then the dad would go to the Torah and go back to the story of Joseph and begin to read how the children of Israel ended up being slaves in Israel that then precipitated the Passover. I don't have time to read Genesis 37 all the way up to Exodus. So I'm gonna tell you very briefly the story of Joseph if you do not know it. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob who then become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was the 11th born favorite son of his dad. And his dad showed him favoritism. Gave him this coat, this big coat of many colors. He didn't have to work out in the field like his 10 brothers did. He got to hang out and play his PlayStation 5 all day while his brothers worked hard. So they started to get mad at him. And then he had these crazy dreams where he said, hey, 10 brothers, older brothers, you're gonna bow down and worship me. Now, if you wanna make an older brother mad, <laughs> tell him that, right? So one day they get an opportunity to deal with this punk little brother of theirs. So they sell him into slavery and the slave traders take him down to Egypt and they sell Joseph to a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar's a wealthy man. Joseph, though, makes the best of his situation. He works hard. Works his way up where he is number two in charge of that household. Potiphar just says, dude, you take care of everything. I've got other business. You got my house. Well, Potiphar's gone a lot. And Potiphar's wife starts to notice Joseph. And he's a good looking man. And so she starts to put the moves on Joseph. And Joseph just says, listen, I'm not gonna sin against my master or against God by doing this. But she won't take no for an answer. So one day she traps him in a bedroom and says, lay with me and grabs a hold of him and tries to force him down. But he slips out of his robe and runs out. But now she's got the robe and look out for a scorned woman, right? Husband gets home. She says, look at what your slave tried to do to me. He tried to rape me. So he gets accused of rape falsely, put in prison, but in prison, he works hard. Works his way to the top. The prison guard is like, hey man, I trust you with everything. He's the dude there in the prison. Well, the baker and the cupbearer of the Pharaoh end up in prison because the Pharaoh got mad at them. They have a nightmare. They're all bummed out. Joseph is like, what's wrong? We had bad dreams last night. 
Joseph rightly interprets both of their dreams and says, when you get restored, remember me. But the cupbearer does not remember him. And two years pass by. And then Pharaoh has a nightmare. His nightmare is skinny corn get eaten by fat corn. And skinny cows eat up fat cows, right? That's a nightmare. He's freaked out by it. Doesn't freak me out one bit because I grew up on Friday the 13th and Freddy Krueger. So that's not scary at all, right? But it's freaking out the Pharaoh. And the cupbearer remembers there's a dude in prison that can interpret dreams. So Joseph is brought out. He interprets the dream correctly. Seven fat years are gonna precede seven skinny years of famine and we gotta store up. So he becomes prime minister of all Egypt. During that time, the famine comes. His crew, that's still his family, that's still up in Israel, start to starve. And they hear that there's food down in Egypt. Make a long story short, they end up moving down to Egypt, the land of Goshen, and being taken care of Joseph for years and years and years. And things are brilliant there. They start to multiply. But then Joseph dies, and that whole generation dies. And a new pharaoh comes that does not remember Joseph. And this new Pharaoh looks at these people and says, here's an opportunity. They're gonna become my slaves. So he puts them to slavery. And that doesn't bother them that much, but then they continue to prosper. God's blessing is on them. And they get stronger and stronger and stronger. And soon the new Pharaoh is afraid of them. They could rise up and defeat my armies now. So he makes a new edict that says, hey, from now on, Every male child that is born to a Hebrew mom is to be thrown into the Nile River and destroyed. Genocide. It's then that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, begin to cry out to God and say, send us a deliverer. Send us a deliverer. And God does that. A baby is born. This one is not thrown into the Nile River. He's raised up for months until he's strong enough, and the mom builds a little boat for this baby, puts the baby in a boat, and sends him down the Nile River. And it just happens that the Pharaoh's daughter is down bathing in the Nile River when this baby in a boat comes floating by. And she sees that it's a baby, and she falls in love with the baby, and she draws the baby out of the water, and that baby's name becomes drawn out or in the Hebrew, Moses, which is amazing to me. It gives you a little signal of what God does all the time. I call it Judo theology. The very place of the pain and the suffering, the Nile River where babies were being drowned, God then turns it and makes it the place where the redemption is actually drawn out of that place, which God does all the time in our lives. The very place of pain and suffering and evil God is great enough and strong enough to take what the enemy wants to use for evil and to turn it into good, just like the Nile River. So Moses is raised up as a deliverer and he comes and justice is brought upon Egypt and brought upon the nation, right? Nine times God warns Pharaoh, let my people go with Moses. Nine times Pharaoh refuses, Time after time after time, his own magicians, his own counselors are like, this is the hand of God, relent, knock it off. But Pharaoh, too proud to let them go, refuses, tricks, deceives. And then finally, time number 10, God punches Pharaoh in the mouth. God says, that's it. I gave you nine times to respond to my mercy. 
Nine times to respond to my grace. You would not. I have demonstrated to you that I am God, that I am powerful. You refuse. Okay. Now you get, set of mercy, justice. And the firstborn of every Egyptian household that does not paint their door, the firstborn dies. So they eat the lettuce in remembrance of that, the tears, the pain, the tyranny. And then they read Psalm 113. I'll read that for you. <laughs> Praise Yahweh. Praise those servants of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. Yahweh is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens, who is like Yahweh our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home and he makes her joyous, makes her the joyous mother of children. Praise Yahweh. And then they take up the second cup and they drink it and they have that same blessing. May you be blessed, Lord our God, king of the world who creates the fruit of the vine. And then they drink of it. And then number three, it's unleavened bread, right? Now why unleavened bread? Because God says to them on Passover night, get ready. Gird up your loins. We'd say, put your shorts on. Put your gym shorts on. Get your backpack on. And don't put leaven in your bread. Why? Because when you leaven bread, you have to wait for it to rise before you can cook it. Don't put leaven in it because you got to cook it right away and grab it and be ready to go out the door. So unleavened bread was the power bar of 1500 B.C., have it ready, have it going. You're gonna eat it as you're walking out of here. And you're to take that unleavened bread and you're to dip it into bitter herbs, literally horseradish, and you're to eat it. And so the kids would dip it in the horseradish and then they would eat it and they'd be like, ah, right? It's like my daughter Gabrielle when she was five. She wanted to go out to eat on her birthday with her mother and I. So we took her to Matsukaze. And we had one of those tables where you sit down and you're kind of really low, you know. It looks like you're sitting on your knees like they do, but you're not, you're very comfortable. So we're at this table and she orders something and it comes and there's this big glob of wasabi, right? And it has that color to it that a kid would be like, is that candy, right? So she says, dad, what is that? I said, that is wasabi. Take a little bit of it and try it and see if you like it. So she looks at me, gets her smile on her face, grabs the whole glob and like is headed for her mouth. And her mom and I are like, Way! but we're too late. Boom, it goes right into her mouth. It was enough wasabi to kill 10 sumo wrestlers, <laughs> right? And there's that like, whatever it is, a, mi a second and a half, right? Two seconds where it, the vapors of it have to get up into your nasal cavity for you to realize how bad of a move this was. So we're like watching her and she goes, 
ah, right? Spits it out. That was what was to happen with the kids. They're like, ah, dad, why did you make me eat this? And this is what the dad would say. You ate that bitter herb because we're to cry in remembrance of what was taking place inside of Egypt. The enslavement that happened to our people. The genocide that happened to the babies. That we are in this moment participating by our tears from the bitter herbs in the pain that they have. It was a way to have empathy, right? It was a way that they were taught from that point forward. We're to have the same empathy for people that are going through similar things today. That's why when you read the Torah, you see these statements like, hey, remember you were slaves in Egypt. So don't enslave people. It was, remember you were strangers in a strange land, so be hospitable to strangers in your land. It's all these things. Remember, eat the bitter herbs and remember that. As Christians, we're to do the same thing. We're to have tears, if you would, empathy for people that are going through difficulty. For people that are under the thumb of bad pharaohs, we're not just supposed to ignore it and be like, well, that's too bad for them. We're to have the same kind of empathy for them, for people that are under the Putins and the ISISs and the terror and the mass shootings. And the, we're not just supposed to be normalized to those things. We're to eat some bitter herbs sometimes and to sit and to remember and to cry for people that are going through difficulty. That's what the bitter herbs were. But Jesus changes it here, doesn't he? Look at verse 22. And as they're eating, he took bread. What bread? The unleavened bread that was there. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body. They're like, what? What did we just eat? Huh? Like, this is horrifying in any culture. You're saying we just ate your body? What in the world? You're changing this. And then right after that, you would have the third cup of wine. And what does Jesus do with the third cup of wine? After he said the blessing, you know, may you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the land. What does Jesus say? This is my blood. And they're like, I thought it tasted funny. Wow, right? So there, there's, this is Jesus doing Passover his style, modifying it, but it's still connected back to Passover. And then Jesus never gets to the fourth cup. That's why he ends by saying, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's like the whole feast is unfinished, all right? Now what is missing when we read about this Last Supper. The lamb, right? Isn't the lamb, if you know Passover, the lamb is the center of the entire feast. It was it. Bring this lamb, watch it for a week in your house, raise it up, it's without blemish. There's a ton of laws and rules about the lamb. It's the centerpiece of Passover. And when you sacrifice this lamb, Keep the blood. Why? Because you're going to take that blood and you're going to put it on your door. You're going to put it on the top of your door. You're going to put it on the two sides of your door. You're going to pour some of it in the basin of your door. 
forming a cross. And it's the blood on your door that when you have that blood on your door, what it means is this. When the death angel comes across the land of Egypt and it's the 10th plague, the unrelenting Pharaoh who will not relent, nine times God gives him grace. The 10th time God punches him in the face. It's God saying, okay, if you put this on your door, when the death angel comes, he will pass over and your firstborn will be protected. Your firstborn will not be killed, right? But there's no lamb here. Or is there? There is a lamb. John the Baptist in John chapter one would say this. Behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying as he gives the cup, this is my blood now. I'm now the Passover. This blood now covers you. What you deserve, the death that you deserve, the death that you've earned because of the wages of sin or death, that death now, I'm going to take that at the cross. And my blood will now cover you. And it will pass over you. And what you deserve, I will take. And what I earn, I will give to you. I'll be your, your shield now. Evil will pass over you. It won't have access to you. And then what's missing as well is the fourth cup. Jesus never drinks the fourth cup. Because what he's saying is this, the cross, yes, it's gonna destroy me. Yes, it's gonna bleed me out. Yes, it's gonna do that. But I'm gonna rise again and I'll drink anew of this cup. So Jesus takes the Passover feast and this is what he does and it's so brilliant. He says, listen, Joseph was a sneak peek of me that I would be betrayed by my brothers. I would be falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. But unlike Joseph, I don't get out. Jesus is gonna say, I'm the new Moses. The very thing that looks like it's going to destroy the cross, kill me, take away my mission, that very thing that looks like it's going to be so evil and so wrong is actually gonna be the means by which I work redemption and salvation and set you free, judo theology. Like all those things, it's just sneak previews. Those are appetizers on the main event, okay? Brilliant, this is so brilliant. So let me try to apply this just in two ways and then we'll be done. So for me, when you look at this story, there's two big takeaways. And I just say, it's a humble celebration. Number one, as believers, we're to be humble. Check out this text. Jesus says this. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. There goes the party, by the way. This is great. Oh, that's no fun. And they began to be sorrowful and say to one another, is it I? And he said to them, it is the one of the 12, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me, for the son of man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man to have not been born. I love this. One of you will betray me. Notice everyone did not say, it has to be Judas, man. I've had my eye on that guy. He is wily. Gotta be him. Jesus didn't treat him differently. 
He didn't seem like he was the guy. Instead, what do all 12 say? Is it I? This is, to me, the number one way a believer should respond to issues that happen in our life. The very first thing a believer should say is, is it I? Never, never exclude yourself from the community of sinners. And what they're asking is this, what evil am I capable of, right? This is future sin. God, Jesus, what evil am I capable of in the future? Not just what I've done in the past, which is horrible, but what could I possibly do in the future? How bad could I be in the future? Because I think we forget that. I think we think sometimes too highly of ourselves. Like when you're young, you're a teenager and you're in your parents' house and your parents do something that you don't like. And so you'll say to yourself as a 14, 15 year old, yeah, when I have kids, I will never do that to them, right? And then you have kids and you do exactly that to them, right? Or as a young adult, you'll be in a shopping center or a shopping store and you'll see uh, parents with a child and the child is having a meltdown and just going crazy. And there can be this kind of, as a young adult, oh, what is wrong with you guys? Why don't you do something about that? You guys need Jesus. And then you have children in the supermarket and you go, I need Jesus, help me, right? There's an arrogance that just this little phrase, man, it cures in all of us. It's whenever there's an issue, we don't deny and we don't blame and we don't run and we don't play the victim. You know what we say? Before we do anything else, we say, is it I? Before I try to take the speck out of your eye, I'm gonna check the beam in my own eye. Jesus, is it I? What did I do to contribute to this situation? What did I do to cause this? That's number one, is it I? So this brilliant author from 100 years ago, his name is G.K. Chesterton. Read his books. He has a book called Orthodoxy. It's so good. Such a good book. He's just a brilliant thinker. He was asked by the London Times, would you please write an essay for us on what is wrong in the world? So think for just one moment. The Daily Courier asks you, hey, please write an essay and submit it to us on what is wrong with the world. What would you write about? Gas prices, that's what's wrong in the world. Inflation, that's what's wrong in the world. Right? Housing crisis, that's what's in the, wrong with the world. The government, that's what's wrong in the world. My mother-in-law, she's what's wrong in the world. What would you write? This is what G.K. Chesterton wrote. Dear London Times, what is wrong in the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. How brilliant of an answer is that? Is it I? I cause problems. Right? That's what Christians are to do. It's why Jesus taught us to pray this prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because I don't even know what I'm capable of. So protect me from that. It's what these guys are saying, is it I? There should be great humility in all of us. The first question we ask when there's issues is, is it I? And then secondly, Jesus uses Passover, this incredible event, the oldest celebrated festival still alive, and he uses that, grafts into it this new thing called communion. 
And if you don't realize the deep roots to communion go through Passover, I think we then make mistakes with how we look at communion today. And so there's two things that for me, I always say these are keys to communion. They are death and celebration, right? So here's a question that theologians ask all the time. Why did Jesus die on Passover? Because if you know the feasts of Israel, the feast that seemed like if I was reading this before Jesus died, I would say when Jesus comes, he would die on the day of atonement. The day where people fast and afflict themselves and have sackcloth and ashes and are super sad, he would die on that day, the day that the sins of the nation were atoned for. Because we have made the cross of Jesus for 400 years all about one thing, the atonement of our sins. And it is that. But why did Jesus die on Passover then? If it's all about the atonement of my sins, then Jesus should have died on the day of atonement. He doesn't die on that day where people fast and afflict themselves and are sad. He dies on Passover, which is a feast, 1 Corinthians chapter five. So why? What was Passover all about? Freedom. You're under the thumb of a bad dude named Pharaoh. I'm going to set you free. It's about liberation. It's about the promises that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. I'm gonna give you this land. I'm gonna bless those that bless you. And I'm gonna make your family a blessing to all nations. That's Passover. That's the roots. It's promises. It's there's going to come from your lineage one who will be able to bless, crush the serpent, crush the betrayer, crush the denier. There's one coming from you. It's all those promises. And they would hold those. Yes! It's why Rome at this time that was subjugating Israel hated Passover. They would build up a massive army in Jerusalem because guess what? They saw themselves in Passover. Oh, we're kind of like the Pharaoh. This is kind of like us. Like, uh-oh, we better really build up, right? Listen, Passover, because it is the roots of communion, Passover, because it tells us about liberation from dark powers, liberation for, from things that enslave us, liberation from genocide. Passover is something incredible. And it's the roots of communion. I think when you and I drink this elixir of heaven, when you and I take communion, we have to remind ourselves, hold on a second. I'm free. Hold on a second. I'm liberated. Whatever Pharaoh there is in your life, that it feels like he's got you, dominating you dictating you. When you eat and drink, you are declaring to that Pharaoh, God can punch you in the mouth and set me free. That's what you're saying. And you, by faith, when you take communion that way, guess what? You walk out a free person. That's not who I am. That person died. I've been raised to newness of life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's we set our hopes on Jesus alone. That the king is the one that we put our hope in. The deliverer is the one we hope in. We don't put our hope in the elections of 2022, as great as they may be. And each one of us should vote. Man, votes matter, 100%. But you know what? Bad people will take office in 2022. Do you know that? Okay. That's the way things are. 
because humans are corrupt. Is it I? No problem. My hope is not in the elections, and I vote, and I vote religiously, but my hope is in the king, period. He's the one that's able to set me free. He's the one that's able to make the promises come true, right? So it's, it's that. It's a celebration. It's a feast, not fasting, right? So number two, it's this. It's commemorating, remembering the death of Jesus. And so here's what I think has happened to many of us. When, when you look at Passover, the door would be painted and, and you'd get passed over, right? The wrath that you deserve would be passed over and we, with great connotations to that. But what happened to me growing up was this. Communion lost those roots and communion became one text and that's it. First Corinthians chapter 11. You guys familiar with that? Here's what Paul says there. He says to this church, listen, you guys are taking communion in an unworthy manner, and people are sick and dying because of that. So then it was taught, if you take communion in an unworthy manner, look out, you can get sick, or God will kill you. So communion for me was miserable. We did it like once a month or once every quarter, and it was on a Sunday night, and I'd be sitting there, and they'd do the teaching on that, and I knew this, I'm a sinner. I'm a bad sinner. I've done bad things this last week. I'm unworthy. And so I had a very, very tough dilemma. It was either take communion and have God kill me or pass up on communion and have my mom kill me. So which one is it, right? And I just, oh, communion was a bummer. Is that the way communion is supposed to be taught? Because if that's it, here's what happens. The self-righteous proud Pharisee marches up to the table, I'm worthy, and drinks it down. While the sensitive saint who knows is it I stays seated. Does that sound like the gospel at all to you? No way, not at all, because it missed something. It missed the roots of Passover. It missed the clear teaching of 1 Corinthians 11, which is a church that had lost its way lost the liberation, lost the promises, lost the new family that God was putting together. And it said this, the rich were feasting at these agape feasts before they had communion, and the poor were fasting, not because they wanted to, but because the rich were not sharing. And Paul says, are you kidding me? Don't you know what Jesus has done? Don't you know the new community that he's building a community of people that care for the poor, that look out for those, that look out for the stranger, that help those. Are you kidding me? That's what Paul was saying there. No, that's not the right way. I take communion. I remember the death of Jesus. Why? He set me free and he's coming back for me. That's how I take it. He set me free from the pharaohs and he's coming back to get me. It's a celebration. So as we take communion today, maybe you feel like there's a pharaoh that's ruling you. You're enslaved to it. Maybe you've tried all kinds of ways to get free from it. You've fasted, you've afflicted yourself. You've done day of the atonement, but it doesn't work for you. I'm gonna tell you something, and I found it true in my life. Jesus can set you free. That if you trust Jesus and say, today I want to be set free, 
by the power of your spirit within me. I want this Pharaoh dethroned. I want freedom from that Egyptian tendency in me. You can be set free when you eat and you drink, trusting in him. Jesus, today I pray for the folks in this service, for those that are staring down pharaohs. I pray that they would know the truth of your power, that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That there is no pharaoh, there is no power, there is no Egypt that is stronger than you. I pray as we eat today that every single one of us would allow the power of your spirit to free us. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup, the cup where we remember you, not how unworthy or how worthy we are, we remember you, how worthy you are, that you're a lamb without blemish that you who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God, that your righteousness has been imputed, given to us by grace alone, and that's why we're worthy. So may we drink in celebration of the promises that are true on our behalf, that every promise in God is yes and amen because of Jesus Christ. That scripture, may we drink deeply in celebratory hope for you, our king. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one final song. If you need prayer for anything, come up here. Passover was precipitated by one thing. The Israelites finally got sick and tired of the Pharaoh and the killing of their babies, and guess what they did? They cried out to the Lord, and God heard them and sent a deliverer. Prayer. Come up and be prayed for. You want a powerful, powerful moment? Come up and be prayed for. And then we offer baptism. Baptism to me is real simple. You believe in Jesus as Savior and you're saved. You get baptized because you're saying he's my king too and I'm obeying him now. And this is that first act of saying you are my king, you're my Lord and I will obey you. If today is your day where you're saying I want Jesus to be my king, I've been ruling my own life, yeah, I'm saved, but I've been kind of ruling my own life. Today, make him your king. If today is your day, man, we'd love to walk you with, with you in that. So Sam right here is waiting over here. He would love to talk to you about what baptism is. And if you say, that's it, 
and will join with you in seeing Jesus author this new chapter in your life through baptism. Would you stand for this final song?